I like that one. That was good. Man, I hope y'all, I hope y'all appreciate these folks who do this for us every week, man. What a blessing. Golly. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing here in worship. That wasn't the lead up to something. That wasn't the build up to the sermon. We are now just continuing in worship, now continuing this series here in 1 Peter. And today, today we're, we're there in chapter 3, and we're picking, we're picking up where Andrew left off last week, right there in verse 13. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And I just ask you to stand with me uh, now as we... As we together, all of us together, standing together before the Lord as we look together at the word of the Lord to us today. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, starting there in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. That is the reason we are here right now. I mean, maybe somebody's here who they they didn't realize that. Maybe they just got drugged here this morning or were driving by and, and saw a dilapidated looking pair of buildings and thought, let's see what's happening. I don't know. Lord, whatever it is that brought us here, we know that ultimately it's because of your love for us. That is why you would speak your word to us. So Lord, give us ears to hear you this morning. God, give us eyes to see. Awaken our souls, Lord, that we might be here, that we might be present, that we might be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been in this series now for more, more, than a, more than a few weeks, and one of the things that I've been, that I've been personally reminded of, one of the things that I, that I keep coming, coming back to is that, there, is that there's no such thing, um, that, that there's no such thing as a natural-born Christian. It, it's, it's, that, it's that all of God's children are adopted children. It's that all of God's children are, are grafted into the family and what the Lord does in that. Here's the thing. Here's what here's what God does. Is like regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our history or our race or ethnicity or gender or age or any other typical marker of who and what we are. What what the Lord does is He comes and He meets us. In the circumstances, and so here, like, so you can be born black, you can be born white, you can be born Jewish or Muslim or even Hindu. But, but what Peter has said, here's the thing he says, is, and this is just tracking along with what Jesus said, is that if we, you and I, if we are in Christ, we have been. God has caused us to be born again. That's what he said back in chapter one that we are born again. That according to his great 
mercy, he has caused us to be born again to, all right, so to a living hope. And in our passage today, really flowing out of that same, that same stream of thought, we remember this is one letter. We break it up into chunks, but it was, it was just one letter. So Peter comes back to that concept of, of Christian hope. But it's not just, and I think this needs to be said, the English language, our, our version of hope really doesn't, doesn't do a good job with this, but it, it's not just some wishful thinking. That's, that's not the hope he's talking about, right? It's not just some sense of anticipation and the unknown. That's sort of our idea. That's the modern idea of hope. Our idea of hope is really, really rooted in uncertainty. I remember a few, it's more than a few years ago, but I'm trying to hang on to this as I get older. More than a few years ago, uh, Laurie and I were in New York with a group of students. We were walking around in a part of, of Manhattan called The Village, and, and this was before we had smartphones. Uh, so that tells you something right there. And I'm, I'm trying to navigate my way uh, through this city. I've got 15 uh, college students following behind me, and we're taking up the whole sidewalk. And we're just trying, all we're really trying to do, honestly, is just get to this specific restaurant that we were supposed to eat at. And Laurie, uh, she had a gentle, she, it was nice of her. She was gentle in this moment. We had walked for a long way at this point. And so she just kind of leans in and she gently says, hey, hey, uh, do you know where we're going? And I remember saying to her, <laughs> my two word response to her was, I hope. <laughs> That's sort of the spirit of the word hope today. It's little more than an uninformed, wishful thinking. And the truth is that I had no idea where we were going. The truth is that when she asked me that question, I had, I had no idea that for, for over 30 minutes we'd been walking in literally the opposite direction that we were supposed to be walking in. We only came to that realization when instead of a, a restaurant, we found ourselves at the shoreline of the East River. And, um, and ultimately to try and save a little face. And, and by the way, this is one of my best varsity moves I've ever had when leading a group of people. We just uh, took a right and walked for a block and then and then took a right and, and, and walked back 30 minutes in the other direction. Nobody on the team ever had any idea. They were just still just walking faithfully behind us. Nobody has ever known. Some of you are in this room are just learning that for the first time. You were there. Um, but the biblical idea of hope, all right, the biblical idea of hope, and this is what Peter is thinking of as he writes that word. The biblical idea of hope is far more grounded, right? And it's really the case that when Peter talks about hope, he's He's talking about hope as a certainty. It's not just a wish. It's not just a longing or even an intention. It's what, it's what we might, here's what we might call it. We might, be, we might call it a believed in future. That's what hope is. It's a believed in future. It's that hope. That's what hope is. It's, it's that hope that really determines and forms. That's our believed in future. What we believe is coming really, really determines and forms the way that we live in the present. And what Peter has done is he's tethered our hope, right? He has tethered Christian hope. He's tethered it to the resurrection. He's tethered it to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what we saw in chapter 1, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the hope is tied to that certainty. It's tied to that real event and space and time that Peter experienced. 
And that hope, right, that believed in future, it shapes and forms us in our present circumstance. I heard Tim Keller describe it like this one time. He, he said, imagine that there are two men. This is the idea. Imagine there's two men, and both of them have been hired to do the same exact job. And it's a hard job. It's a menial job. It's, it's one of those just you get up and you grind from, from sunup to sundown. They've both been hired to do this for 365 days, for one full year. And they're miserable in this work. It's, it's, it's terribly taxing work. It's boring. It's, it's just not fun. But that is their shared experience. That is their present circumstance. It's identical to one another. But one of them, okay, one of them's been told that at the end of this year, we're going to pay you $15,000. At the end of this year, if you do all this, we're going to pay you $15,000. But one of the, the other guy, the other guy's told at the end of this year, we're going to pay you $15 million. At the end of this year, you're going to get $15 million. And you see, wouldn't that change how we approach the work that we were doing on any given day? It's the believed in future, the hope that's out there that determines our perspective. It determines how we experience our present circumstances. And that matters for how we approach the life of mission. How we approach the life of mission, what Peter has been pressing into for the last few weeks, is determined by what we believe is at the end of that road. And so continuing in this theme of mission, of life on mission, of being saved not just from something, right? Not just saved from something, not just from sin and not just from death, but also saved to something. Save to, something's not the right way, save to someone, save to God the Father. And not just to something or someone, but saved for something. Saved for a purpose that you, remember this is it, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or more succinctly, we've been saved for his glory. And we've been called as image bearers of God, as redeemed sons and daughters of the King to reflect His glory in the earth. It's been this progression for Peter as he goes through this. You can sort of see him. This is what's really neat about this letter. You can see Peter as he's writing, sort of working out the implications of the gospel in his own life. Like as he's processing, as he's thinking, as he's putting pen to paper, he's thinking about what this means for him. And, and though his circumstances really haven't changed a whole lot, it's his hope. It's the promise of what's to come that is forming him in the present. And so tracing this missional thread that began back in 2.9 with the call to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior, we've seen Peter address mission through the framework of human relationships. We can't forget that. And he's just been kind of going through them. He's kind of going through different levels of relationships. In 2.13, it was, it was every human institution. You remember that? It was, he said, this is how you live in every human institution. We called that the culture around us. And 2.15 said that, that by doing good, here's what Peter said, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That was the first one. And then in 2.18, it was servants being subject to their masters. It was the workplace. That's what we said. It's, it's in the workplace, that relationship. And 2.20 said that if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then Peter, and I love this about the apostle Peter, but he always comes back to the gospel. Like he can't help it. He just always comes back to the gospel. And as it was right after that in 2.24, we see gospel proclamation that he himself bore our sins 
and his body on the tree. That's the good news for us. Then we see gospel renewal, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the born-again new creation life in Jesus. And then we see gospel doxology, that by, by his wounds you have been healed. You see, that's praise. And for Peter, it always rolls up into praise. And then he rolled into wives and husbands, that, that unbelieving husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He tells them to do good. And then last week, last week we saw it in the church, where he says, finally, all of you, right? All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He's going, this is what it looks like to adorn the proclamation of the gospel with your life. This is what it looks like to authenticate your proclamation. It's opening the window to the gospel by being good neighbors, by being good workers, by being good family members. He's going, it's by your life. It's the fruit that is displayed. And now here in verse 13, he asks this rhetorical question. It's what 13 is. It's a rhetorical question. He's wanting us to think. He wants us, he wants you and me to slow down. He wants us to think and to process. And so he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's the question. And you have to respect Peter, not just because he's an apostle, but, but also because he's just so optimistically pragmatic. Like he's a, he, Peter is a hopeful realist. That's what he is. And I love this question. I, I love this question because it challenges me. It challenges us in our fears. It challenges me to ask real questions about where I have anchored my own hope in this world. He's going, who is going to harm? Who is going to want to harm you if you are eager to do what is good? That's a reasonable question to ask. Who is going to want to harm you if you're doing what is good? Why are you so afraid if you are doing what is good? And we might ask, well, well what exactly is good? What does it mean to do good? What does that look like in the Bible, even apart from the picture that we have of Jesus? The Bible gives us an answer to that question. It speaks to that. In the Old Testament, in Micah, it's a famous verse in Micah, the prophet is challenging. Here's what prophet Micah is doing. He's challenging the people to use, uh, he's challenging them on the use of their sacrifices, He's challenging them on the use of their sacrifices because they're making their sacrifices, but their lives don't reflect a changed, converted heart. They're almost using their sacrifices as a cover-up to then go and do whatever it is they want to do. Yes, they show up to the temple. Yes, they bring their sacrifices. And we can see this in the contemporary setting, right? We can, I mean, we can do this. It's not even that big of a leap. Yes, they show up for church. Yes, they bring their tithes. They volunteer in the nursery. They might get up front and sing. They, they, they might even go out on rainy Sundays with umbrellas to walk people into the building so they don't have to walk through the waterfall that is our front entranceway. They might do that. In fact, they do, but the rest of the time, here's the thing, here's what Micah's saying, the rest of the time, this is Micah's point, their lives look just like the world around them. They go to work, or the golf course, or the Mexican restaurant, or wherever it is that you go, and they look and they sound just like everyone else. That's Micah's problem with the people of God. That was the problem in Micah's day, and it's a familiar problem in our day. And so Micah writes, he has told you. He's going, look, God's already said it. 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's what the Lord requires of his people. That's what we've called the way of Jesus. This is an alternative way of life for the new creation children of the king. And what Peter is saying, and really what Peter has been saying, is that if we walk in this way, the world is going to notice that if we walk in the way of Jesus, the world is going to notice. But then again, you can see Peter working this out. Then he sort of remembers here. You can almost see him remembering uh, there between verses 13 and 14. You can see him remembering what happened to Jesus. He remembers Jesus showing justice. He remembers Jesus walking and and caring and showing mercy to those around him. He he remembers Jesus walking in humility. He remembers how Jesus walked in the world. And then he remembers how, how the world responded to him. And how even the religious people responded to him. And so he adds, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But even if you should suffer, listen to that, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, how is that possible? And that's a legitimate question. If you read through 1 Peter and you go, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you should suffer for doing right, for doing good, if you should suffer for doing right, he says you will be blessed. You should pause. If you're reading through this on your, in your fancy chair or whatever, doing your quiet time on a Monday morning, and you don't pause and go, wait, what? And you may not actually be reading the words there because that is counterintuitive. That I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to suffer because of that. Peter says you will be blessed. We're going to come back to that idea a little more in a couple weeks, but the first and foremost way, I'm going to deal with this one time right here today, the first and foremost way that suffering for righteousness' sake can be a blessing is because it unites us with Christ who suffered for righteousness' sake. It's because it unifies us with our Savior. It happens so often that we only think of blessings in terms of temporal, earthly benefit. We're blessed with health, we're blessed with money, we're blessed with a house and cars and, and, and winds and I mean, like all these things. We're blessed even in relationships. But what Peter wants to press into is that none of us are ever more than a moment away from any of that being taken. Like it takes one, you think about it, it takes one visit to the doctor where he sits down and goes, so. It takes one phone call. Like we are never more than a phone call away from everything that we call an earthly blessing evaporating into nothing. And so the greatest blessing that we have, the truest blessing that we have is the living hope that we've been born again into. It's that inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's being kept in heaven for you. So when suffering happens in this life, especially suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for doing what is good, suffering for honesty, suffering for purity, suffering for not caving to the moral standard of the world around us, for for pursuing, suffering for pursuing a life of holiness, when we suffer for that, it reminds us, here's the other thing it does, it reminds us that the world is not our home. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. 
This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's what suffering for righteousness sake reminds us. It reminds us that we are exiles here. It reminds us that this broken place will be made new. We just sang that, right? We just sang that in the lead up to this passage that Jesus makes all things new. That's the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. Again, it's an informed hope. It's a believed in future. And that hope is is the most inescapably formative thing about us. Again, the author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, it's his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness, not my faithfulness. Like, my hope isn't in me. It's not. At the risk of being overly honest, my hope isn't in you either. I mean, I like you. I care about you. I even even love you. Y'all are family to us. My family and I, in very real sense, my family and I depend on you. And I trust you, but I don't trust in you. I'm not putting my hope in you. If I don't put my hope in me, I'm certainly not putting it in you. No, we're all too fragile, right? We're all too limited. We're too temporal. And so I'm, I'm putting my hope, I'm putting my hope in the promise of God. That's what I'm doing. I'm putting my hope in the one who walked out of the grave. He is the hope that I confess. And so here's what happens when we walk in that hope, when we walk in living hope. Look at verse 15. Peter said, don't be afraid of the world and don't be troubled by the world. But he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The flow of this here is is really important. The order here is important. First comes a posture before the Lord. That's the first thing that happens. It's a posture before the Lord. It's a posture of the heart before God, a posture of holy reverence before God. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's not just a thought, right? That's not just an idea. That is a posture. That's a conviction of the heart. That's an understanding. This is critical. If we reverse this, we get it way out of balance real quick. If we start with what we do before who we are, we get it, we get it backwards, It's an understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. That's where it must and shall begin, uh, with understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And And what that happens then is it becomes a controlling conviction in our lives. And so seeing my sin and then seeing my Savior, it changes, here's what, it changes everything about life and seeing Jesus each day is like it's like a fresh wave of hope. People people laugh because pastors always say, "Well, you need to be reading your Bible." Why do you always tell me to read? That's why, right there, it's because we are so in need of hope, and God has given us His Word, and we leave it on the shelf, and we sit there and look at Instagram instead, and wonder why we feel so hopeless. I didn't expect Instagram to get an amen, but I'll take that. 
We're Presbyterians. We take them any way we can get them. That's, how, that's, that's just, just the truth. It's a reminder for us. Y'all, God's Word is a reminder for us each day of our salvation. It's a reminder of the goodness and the grace of our God. And so where does it start? It starts with the heart. That's where Peter starts. It starts with our hearts and that posture before the Lord. Then it, then it changes our posture in life, right? As the heart goes, so goes the life. It means that we walk in faith. It means that we walk in hope. It means that we walk in love. Because why? Because He first loved us. You see, it always comes back to the gospel. And love isn't passive, man. Like hope, love is expressed. What we truly love will be seen in how we truly live. And if we love the Lord, right, we'll love the things that the Lord loved. Tim Chester, and I love the simplicity of this thought. He says this about Christians in the church. This is sort of a summary of what our role is. He says, Our role is to live good and attractive lives under the lordship of Christ that provoke questions. That's, his, that's, that's what he says. Our role is to live good and attractive lives under the lordship of Christ, and that life is going to provoke questions, right? So, so through it all, he's going, uh, and really it's what Peter's been getting at, uh, he's going through it all, like all the ups and all the downs, all the, all the peaks and down in the valleys, through it all, keep your hearts focused on Christ in adoration for who he is and appreciation for what he has done and then walk in the way of Jesus because of the hope that is in you. That's the call here. It's really it's, it's far less complicated than we would make it. I should have just read the passage and sat back down. And Peter, I want you to understand this. Peter understands the complexities of your life. All right, he, he is not a simpleton. Being a fisherman, I don't know why we've gotten into this idea that being a fisherman was a dead-end job. Bro, that was the family business of almost every family in Galilee. That was a solid way to make a living in the ancient world. Being a fisherman wasn't a dead-end job. And Peter was called out of a family business. He was called out of an almost certain future. The guy left his friends. The guy left his family. He gave up his career. He, like, he changed his life to follow after Jesus. And so he isn't writing to you from a place of ignorance. He gets it. That's why this message is so applicable to us today. It's because the message isn't conditioned upon your situation. Like the calling isn't conditioned upon our circumstances. But what Peter's, Peter's getting at here, he's getting into this new creation life where our circumstances in the present don't determine our actions in the present. That the world around us doesn't determine who we are in the world. No, it's our hope. Here it is. It's our hope in what's to come. It's that living hope. It's that believed in future that determines our lives today. I mentioned that we had a, had a time in New York where we walked for miles in the wrong direction. On that same trip, it was on that Sunday, uh, we made plans to worship with the good saints at Redeemer Presbyterian Church at one of their services. And so uh, at the time, Redeemer met in three different places across the city. We were going to the 4 p.m. service at Hunter College. So uh, it, it was up on the Upper East Side Manhattan. And, and the problem is that we had no idea how to actually get to Hunter College. We knew the subway stop and that was it. And we were pressed for time. And I'm desperate. Um, I, 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 beyond, I hate being late. Um, 
I will sit somewhere for 15 minutes in a parking lot just to avoid being late. Um, ask my kids. They will, they will affirm that for you. Hate being late. And, I, and more than that, I hate <laughs> being lost. Anybody? Yeah. I'm both of those things in a city I'm unfamiliar with. They're both happening. And so we, we stopped and we are looking around, uh, sort of in that desperation, right up there on Park Avenue of all places. And, and as I'm looking, I see a young man uh, walking down the sidewalk and he's got a Bible in his hand. And then I looked a little bit more, and there's a, there's a couple of young, uh, young women who are walking down that same sidewalk, and they've got Bibles in their hands. And they're going in the same direction. And so, again, Laurie and I were kind of like, what, what do we do? It's like, we, I, I don't know where they're going. It looks like they're going to church. Let's just follow them. And so that's what we did. We just followed them. They didn't look lost. They were moving so confidently down the sidewalk, as confident as I've ever seen anyone move in their entire lives. They were so sure, so unwavering with every step. They had none of the doubt that I had. They had none of the fear or apprehension. There was no ambiguity in their steps. They knew who they were, and they knew where they were going, and that changed everything. And so here's what we did. We just followed them. That's sort of what Peter's presenting here. By the way, we did tell them we're just following you, so they didn't think we were like weird southern stalkers or whatever. But anyway. That's what Peter's presenting here. When we walk in the hope of Christ, when we walk in that living hope, we walk in a certainty of where we're going. It's that... It's that believed-in future that really forms the way in which we live today. It, it doesn't mean that hardship won't come. Peter's very clear on that. It doesn't mean that doubt won't ever pop up. But our ultimate hope is in the Lord. Our ultimate hope is in what He's going to do, not in what we can do. Our ultimate hope is not in, not in our promise, but in His promise. And this is a visible hope, man. It's an unveiled hope. It's a hope that shows up. And Peter makes two presumptions here. Do you see that? The first is that you, as a disciple of Jesus, it's that you will walk in the way of Jesus. If you are a disciple, disciple means follower. It means learner. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will inevitably begin to look like Jesus in how you carry yourself. It's the way of Jesus. He calls it good behavior. But, but good here is more than being polite, right? It's more than manners. Good is, is, good is like Jesus. That's what he means. Knowing our ultimate future. See, Jesus always knew that. He knew where he was headed. He knew what he came to do. He told them multiple times, even if they didn't believe him. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, right? Remember that? And they were like, I don't know what that means, but let's go with him. And at one point, he's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. And the apostles are like, let's go die with him. And he's like, that ain't going to do anybody any good. Now, he knew where he was headed. He knew that ultimate future. And so, so do we. Like Knowing how it all ends gives us a surety. It gives us a confidence in where we're headed. And so we can walk in the way of Jesus. Like those people walking down the street to Hunter College, we know the way. We're teaching our middle son how to drive right now. And he's you know, spent his life in the back seat, I guess, watching his phone while we were driving around. He didn't know how to get anywhere. It's like 
three quarters of a mile to the next stop. He's like, I, let me punch it into Siri or whatever. And I'm like, dude, come on. Like, you know, thank God for Google Maps or whatever. But anyway, it's just when you know the way to get, it's what's so cool is to watch his confidence in driving grow as his understanding of where he's going. He knows the way. We know the way. We can walk in the way of Christ. And the other presumption, here's the other one, is that the world is going to notice. Is that our hope will be so real and tangible that our neighbors, our roommates, our kids, our families, they're going to see it. They're going to see it and, and they're going to see how we, here it is, they're going to see how we respond in conflict. How about that? The people around us are going to see how you and I respond in conflict. The people around us, they're going to see how we handle our finances. They're going to know how generous we are or ungenerous. They're going to see it in how we budget our time and energy. They're going to see it in the things that we, that we declare are important enough to wake up for or declare are important enough to stay up late for. They'll see it in our availability to them, our willingness to listen. They'll see it in our, our willingness to share, to walk with them in the mess. And then they'll wonder. That's what Peter's saying. They're going to wonder. They're going to wonder about you. And we should be ready to tell anyone who asks why it is that we're able to walk in that peace, why it is that we're able to walk in that hope. Like maybe some will see us and they're going to laugh, right? Maybe they'll see our kingdom priorities and think we're silly. You ever passed a neighbor who's like loading up the boat on a Sunday morning while you're driving to church and just looks at you like, what a moron. They might even shame us, right? They might take advantage of. If you're a Christian, eventually you will be taken advantage of. But look what, Peter, look what Peter reminds us. He says, looking at, looking at Christ with, with his eyes on Jesus, you should get this vision again of him. Look at what he says. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And in that, we'll see this in the coming weeks, in that suffering... You and I are brought closer to Christ. You and I are brought closer to our Savior. He's going, you're going to suffer anyway, man. You live in a broken world. There's not a... Broken things cut people, man. That's That's all they're pretty much good for. You live in a broken world. You're going to suffer. But it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Oh... May we be faithful to suffer well. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope that you give us. Not just in today, not just in this short, fleeting moment, but Lord, a hope that's anchored in the surety of your promises. That you won't leave us, that you won't forsake us. Lord, our call to worship this morning declared it. The steadfast love of God is forever. That's our hope. That's our hope, and it's anchored in the resurrection of our Savior, our living hope. May we be a people in a hopeless world. God, help us to be a people of hope. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now and let's respond together in singing praise to our God.